Thank you so very much. You can imagine the varied emotions that I have today as I see the recollection of our history. Be assured that I did very little of what has been said. Nobody does, nobody does anything like that by themselves. And in the providence of God, we had a tremendous number of people just surface and come to our rescue. And in our days of need and joy, because they were both, we had great times. Really, as I, as I watched that, I thought, what a privilege it has been to see the institution grow. And what a wonderful thing to have many of our alumni here today. And to think of many who have been honored of the Lord and are greatly used. Now, our general idea today is, is quite demanding. Steve has asked me to, to speak and also to bring in the historical part of the college and then to answer any questions that you might like to have. And the idea is that we'll have to sort of have this split up and you'll understand, I hope. By the way, Steve is probably as involved in all of the activities on campus as anyone at all. He goes from, from bush to bush like a rose, and then the bee, you know how they go from flower to flower, and that's the way Steve does in almost every department. It's amazing to me how many of our students he knows, how many activities he's involved in, and I hope that you will find him your friend. That's one of the great privileges of coming to this college, is to find that uh, as the years go by, some of your best friends are the people that you met at college. I still call nearly, at least monthly, one of the fellows that I went to college with, and I'm sure that this is the case, that some of the best friends you'll ever have are the people that are sitting right near you right now, or participating in your activities. And so when you have opportunity, as, as, uh, as Steve has invited you, go back to the back of Vider Hall, and that's where the alumni office is, and Shirley Kemper will be there, and uh, Steve will be back there, and welcoming you and trying to help in the many ways that the Alumni Association is able to do. Now, I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10, and I'm going to read just the last few verses of the, that chapter and into chapter 11. And we have in mind today the subject of faith. Let me take just a jiffy to say that but that is not as, as uh, easily understood as we might think. One of the great issues and concerns of our hearts is, have I believed unto salvation? Is my faith genuine? Uh, the whole idea is not that clear. It's a term that we use all the time. By the way, it's used about 500 times in the New Testament and only twice in the Old Testament, the word faith. So it is not something that we take for granted. We ought to know all about it. It has a tremendous breadth of information for us. But it is something that we have to concentrate on. If you were asked, define faith. What do we mean by faith? I think you'd gulp a couple of times and say, well, and begin to, to stumble. So we'll try and help you this morning. The idea of faith, fundamentally, is uh, that of persuasion. It's that little little term pistos, faith, or 
pisteo or pestuo, as the word believe is. If you take those together, they're all really the same basis. And the root is from the verb to persuade. When you think of the word faith, you think of the word persuade. It's the idea of being brought into a conviction. That's another term that's just a part of it. And then from that grows the word commitment. If you can keep that in mind, the idea of persuasion or firm persuasion or of conviction or a subsequent idea of commitment, they all gather around this word. And I want you to see the use of it in a few of these verses. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Now, the reason he says that is because the evidence of faith, the, the proof of valid faith, is continuing. How would we know that we're saved? Well, today you say, I feel like I am, or I believe that I am, and tomorrow I, I may not. And the way that we know it, one of the ways that we know that we are we're walking in faith, is to continue. And that's what it says. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. And then he says to our encouragement, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe or have faith and are saved. There's our word faith. Then in chapter 11, where you'd expect it, of course. Now, faith is being sure of or being confident of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And by the way, that will come into focus again and again. What we do not see, we're dealing with the invisible. We're dealing with things spiritual. We're dealing with the ultimate reality, for God is spirit. So when we say we have faith in God... We're, we're entering a dimension that naturalism and this present evil world does not like. They don't understand it, and they reject it. Maybe you heard of the, the agnostic surgeon, brain surgeon, who said in ridicule one day, I have operated on many a human brain, and I've never seen a soul. And someone said, well, did you ever see a thought? Who is to debate that there is thought? The reality of the invisible is there, and the Word of God says the great, the great truth that encompasses it is faith. So it says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, the promise of the gospel, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were recommended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Then into verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's some very profound things that are taught there, and of course in this institution... They touch on some of the most fundamental reasons for our existence. When we talk about creation, we talk about special creation. 
We believe that the Word of God is very clear in the very first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. And men and women have given their lives here to the affirmation of what we call special creation. We do not believe in the evolutionary processes. We do not believe in the accident of this universe. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth just as he has recorded in his word and to which he refers again and again, including this particular passage in Hebrews. Then the word of God says, without faith, without this one access that we have to God, we cannot please him, which is another way of saying we cannot be accepted by him. But it says, but he that cometh to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, there are three things there. There is, first of all, the idea of the personality of God, he, twice in that passage. We must believe that he exists, that there is a person behind all of this, an omnipotent person. There is the triune God that is in view. We must believe that. We must also believe in the existence of God. If there is to be any real benefit, if there is to be any favor bestowed, there must be that, that God is there. That was Francis Schaeffer's great book, The God Who Is There. And what a wonderful book it is and what a ministry it has had. But the idea is there is a living, wonderful, infinite God who has brought us to the light of knowledge and truth. Then finally, of course, that if I reach out to him in faith, I will be rewarded. God does intersect human history. God does intervene in the affairs of men. God, to those of us who are here today, God answers prayer is one way of saying it. There is the unfolding of truth that is involved here, and we, we grasp it. We enter into it through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, his own revelation to us. Now, as Steve said, this is not such a young institution as you may have thought. It began in 1927, in the middle of a day that was different than ours, because in that day there was war in the camp, and the camp was the church, and the denominations were at war within their own ranks, and the Presbyterians split, and the Episcopalians split, and the Methodists split, and the Baptists split, and on it went, because people were contesting frantically, in many cases, for their identification with the living God, and there were those within their jurisdiction who had rejected the truth of God's Word, and rejected the deity of Christ, and the other great doctrines that we affirm. In those days, there were three beloved pastors down in L.A. who decided we must have our own school. It will not do to be, be identified with the University of Chicago any longer. It won't do to be identified with Berkeley Baptist Divinity School. It won't do to be identified here or there. We want a school that is loyal to the truth of God. The name of the first president was Dr. William Matthews. At the end of his ten, first ten years, he was president for 16 years, he wrote a little booklet and called Ten Wonderful, it was called Ten Wonderful Years. And he tells the story of how he was invited to a Solomar, if any of you know where that is, the great conference ground 
up at, uh, by Monterey. He was invited there by the Baptist Convention to speak to the young people. When he got there, the powers that be said, you can't speak because you have in your statement of faith Article 10, which says, this seminary rejects the common phrase religious education. Unitarian in origin, the phrase stands for salvation by education. This seminary stands with Jesus who taught Nicodemus and Paul that salvation came not through education nor religious education, but through regeneration by the act of the Holy Spirit. Now they said to Dr. Matthews, eliminate that and you can make your announcement and, and receive the favor of the convention. The president's reply was, it will be a million years before we delete that statement from our affirmation of faith. Now with that kind of conviction, he would have lost his pension, he would have lost any standing he had other than his local church, but he took, he planted his feet, he was a man of conviction, and for 16 years he led this school as its president, and he planted, of course, some great seed and some great roots a wonderful expression of faith and typical of those early days. About 1945, the school, Dr. Matthews died, and the school went into a time of turmoil. Who is going to lead now? What's going to happen? Uh, those were not easy days. Practically all of Dr. Matthews' days were characterized by depression in our country, of course, from 1929, remember I said the school began in 1927, the Depression hit in 1929 and continued right into the Second World War. So practically all of his administration was one of faith because finances were practically nil and uh, they faced one, one trial after another. About 1945-46, they received the, the opportunity of a great leader who came from Illinois, Dr. Henry C. Thiessen, but Dr. Thiessen was not well, and in one year he passed off the scene. He died right after resigning. And while, while this was going on, there was a beloved brother interested in the school, not having any particular part in it legally, but his name was Dr. Carl Swayze, and you pick up that name, I'm sure. He was over in the eastern part of the country, and he met two exceptional men. One was Dr. Milton Fish, the other was Dr. Herbert Hotchkiss. Dr. Hotchkiss was a pastor in, in Philadelphia and doing some teaching at the Philadelphia School of the Bible. Dr. Fish was in New York at the National Bible Institute. They were exceptional men. Dr. Hotchkiss, a graduate of Cornell University and a Westminster Seminary. Dr. Fish, a graduate of Andover Newton as well as Harvard University. Exceptional men, but getting along in their 50s, and I think Dr. Fish was in his 60s. At any rate, Dr. Swayze said, would you come to LABTS, as it was then? Would you come and help us? Would you come to lead us? And the men said, after due prayer and great concern, because they had families, they said, we will. Dr. Swayze returned home to find that the school had, had faced such distress that the trustees voted to close it. So he, he telegraphed back to them, we cannot, cannot fulfill our commitment to you. The school is closing. These two men said, no way. We're coming anyway. And they did. Now, mind you, in, in that period of time, that was a long ways across this country. 
and without any any real assurance of support, Dr. Hotchkiss and Dr. Fish, they just said, we believe this is of God, we believe that this is where our lives should be invested, and we're coming, and they did. And if you talk to Mrs. Hotchkiss, who is still with us, she was 18 years younger than her husband, Dr. Herbert Hotchkiss. That's John Hotchkiss's mother. And she is some lady. She's about 80 years of age. I hope she wouldn't mind me telling anybody that. But anyway, she's about that. And a wonderful, wonderful woman. And one who could tell you far more about that era than I could. But there were men who really stood for God. When my precious wife and I and our six children came to L.A. in 1959, we found that that the school had had uh, some wonderful things, had had some great ministry, and had some wonderful students, by the way, even though that fall there were just 50. And I used to walk the streets down on the east of, of the city, about three, four miles from downtown, and I'd walk and I'd look at the property around and I'd think, with one-third of an acre, how in the world do we ever get anywhere here? And then I'd try to buy some of the property and you couldn't buy it. Everything was wrong. And so we began to pray and look to see if there might be some other location, although we had considerable debt and absolutely no funds for property. One day, a dear brother phoned me and he said, We've got it. It's in Newhall. I said, Where is that? He said, uh, he, he began to describe it. I shared it with the other boards, members of the board, and they didn't know where it was for the most part. But at any rate, eventually we came out and looked at it. It was being run by a Roman Catholic as a, uh, initially a school for handicapped children, and the community had risen against that, and then a school for underprivileged children, which the man expect, expected to bring in a handsome income, and that was a disaster, and so here it is across the street. So we said, what do we do? It's 13 acres. Yes, but there's adjoining property, 14 acres, and in the middle is a, a property, a three-quarter acre lot that a lady owns. At any rate, we decided we'll, we'll talk it over. So we went up to what is now Cal Island. It's, it's, uh, was Tips. Tips had three restaurants here, and we met there, and we, we said, well, now, how shall we proceed, or what do we do? How would it be if we pass around a sheet of paper? And each one of us will try to believe God for the most money that we think we can raise to help secure the campus. And we have to put a minimum on it, so we'll say $20,000. If, as we all do our duty and share this, by all will be well, we hope. So we sat there and we pondered and imagined and tried to believe God and whatever. And the, the paper went around and it came back. A total, this is about 20 men, of $9,000. And Mr. Slight, who was the chairman then, he leaned over to me and he said, Doctor, I guess that's it. We all sat there sort of stunned. And finally, Dr. Penberthy said, uh, Mr. Slight, I don't think this is right. I think we ought to go ahead. Mr. Slight said, well, you mean in spite of the fact that we've only dreamed up 9,000, we don't have 9,000, we're just thinking that we might be able to reach a total of 9,000? No, he said, I believe that, that if God is in it and has brought us this far, 
We ought to go ahead. And you know, within five minutes, we were all saying the same thing. We sang the doxology, walked out of there without a dime, and, and on and back to negotiate. And it cost us. The one across the street, the 13-acre, I think, was 97500 and the other was uh, about 55000 And that little dear lady in the middle, she owned a three-quarter-acre lot where the music center is. And I said to her, I said, you know, we've come to build a Christian school, and we'd like to offer you $5,000 for that lot. Oh, she said, that's worth far more than that. Yeah, but I said, we don't have far more than that. And at any rate, it's right in between our two properties. You wouldn't want to be be living in the middle of a college campus where you're in the middle of the thing. And she finally said, I think you're right. I think that I'll sell it to you for 5000 Now, that lot is worth now 200000 or more where that property is not counting the house. But at any rate, that's the way it went. The men stepped out in faith. Dr. Penberthy just seized that moment. Now, students and alumni, your day may come when it is time for you, if you believe God is in your life, to believe God in every way, to really plant your feet and commit your life and your pocketbook and your energy. Believe God. It can be a great experience. And I've, as I say, time and again we saw that. We saw it in students. May I just say this much about the students? You know, if we had announced this downtown and there'd been bitterness or sour grapes from the students, we probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. If there had been that among the alumni, if there'd been that among the board of trustees, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. We'd have been down there, maybe yet, if we would still be alive, and on our one-third or quarter of an acre. But when we announced it, we said the board has voted. We didn't ask them to vote, but we said the board has voted to relocate a new hall. We're going to cancel classes whenever, and we'll all go out there in a caravan and see what's, what it looks like. And we did. And then came the hard work, relocation of, of living quarters and employment and everything else under the sun. But I don't remember one single student that really had any protest. I remember everybody, as far as I know, helping move the library, move whatever there was. Let's get on out of town, out into the country, and get on with the job of education. That was one time. About five years after we got here, this whole canyon caught fire all around, just like a circle around us, and overhead, the sheriff in his helicopter was saying, evacuate the canyon. Everybody has to get out of this canyon. It's on fire. It's not safe. Everybody has to leave. And here we were. The only new buildings were Powell Library, the little part that it, where we began with, and the White House. And everything else was, was uh, not too significant anyway. So my son and I, we let the girls, the five girls and my precious wife, they bundled up whatever, grabbed whatever, put them in our car, and drove off as everybody else in the place was doing. And the fire kept moving in on us, and houses were burning. And it, just, it was quite a, a scary experience. And there wasn't any water pressure. There wasn't the big water tank up the hill then. And so here are John and I up on top of the house over there with a, a little dribble coming out of the hose. And aren't we courageous looking around, you know, I wonder how close it is and how much time we have to run here because there's nothing, you know, it was all grass and 
And then, do you know what happened? The students started to come back. All of them. We had more students up and down every little part of the campus. And they were there to protect their school. And we got into the little canyon, which used to be where the science building was, up behind King Hall, whatever it is now. But anyway, there they were, most of them, ready to watch it come across from town. And here it kept coming closer and closer. And then we're all huddled down in there waiting to do our best to protect whatever. And it never came. Believe it or not, dear friends, that fire stopped right on our property line all the way up the hill, just as though God put his hand down and stopped that fire. We did not lose 10 cents worth of property. I think we had two or three trees singed behind what is now Reese Academic Center. But God just put his hand down and delivered this campus. But within that was a spirit of commitment, and loyalty and excitement that just permeated every single heart. What a day. What a day. And those, those who were there will never forget it. Never forget it. What a day. Then we come to about 1980. 1980. Some of you were alive in 1980. So uh, this. let me just tell you this much. We wanted to build a student center. We urgently needed the student center. The dining hall was jammed. Uh, it was murder trying to get your mail. Whatever it was, we didn't have it. We didn't have the facilities, and that building was needed. But the community wouldn't let us have it. They were, Placerita Homeowners Association were just determined they were not going to let us build another thing. I don't think they'd ever forgiven us cutting down the oak trees on the athletic uh, field. See, that was all oak trees, and we never thought about it. Pete Reese said, what do I do now? And I said, well, you cut them all down. So he got a, a power saw and cut them all down. <laughs> and, uh, but we didn't realize we were making everybody mad at the time. We said, what good is an arboretum to us? We want an athletic field. <laughs> at any rate, here they are, and everybody is opposed to us. And it just got to be really sour grapes. We could not get a permit for that building because of the opposition locally. We had made a friend named Ed Bolden with Andell Engineering right down here in town. He is one nice man, a black man who is really highly regarded in the community. And I went to him. I said, Ed, we have a very sticky wicket here. We don't, we just cannot get this campus finished any way, shape, or form because of the opposition that's here. I said, what do you suggest? He said, you have got to play politics. Oh, I said, that isn't, that isn't our way. Well, he said, now wait, let me explain this. He said, what you need is to get up some petitions and let the whole of Santa Clarita Valley realize the predicament you're in. I said, how would it be if you come to chapel and you tell a story, because I don't know beans about politics, but I like the sound of it, so he came in here, and at that time, that was where the student body was over there. Some of you who are here today used to sit over on the bleachers there. And uh, Mr. Bolden came, and he said, we need volunteers for petitions. We'd want to take petitions to the, the shopping malls, the stores, the houses, wherever. So we canceled classes, and the whole student body, I mean everybody, grabbed petitions. And up and down we went. 
And I mean, they, that homeowners association was so embarrassed at what they'd been trying to do that they backed off. In fact, the head of the outfit said to me, she said, I would, I'd be able to sign that. Yeah, I thought, today you would. Yesterday you weren't going to do anything like that. But the idea was the students, they sensed this is of God. This is something we believe in. This is something we love. We are going to step out and help. And I like that. You know, a president can do almost anything if the students will really stand with him. Dr. MacArthur, he's a man in his own right of great influence. But, you know, there's nothing like having a student body and a faculty and a staff that are really with him. That's how you get things done. And that's the sort of the thing that all of you should be involved in in your local churches, in your ministries. It's as we labor together, as we believe God, that things get done and are a great joy to us, and we praise God for it. Now, Mr. and I are going to have get a little exposed here, and you have the opportunity to uh, do what you like in terms of asking any questions you might like to ask. We'll try to field them and do the best we can. Because of this illness of mine that affects the nervous system, we're going to have a couple of chairs here. Is that all right? Yep. You bet. Well, I think we're ready to cancel classes and have a petition drive to fix potholes. You've got to aim high. Pothole. That's about as high as I can get, potholes. Um, we want to introduce your wife, Dr. Duncan. She is here this morning, and we want to welcome her. Mrs. Duncan, would you stand for just a moment so we can welcome you? Where did she go? Mrs. Duncan? There she is. Okay. Well, before I read the uh, questions, it's just... I'll get, I'll get them. I'll get, thank you. Um, <laughs> I just want to read um, in the passage that you are preaching from. As you read through that passage and go into chapter 12, it says, Wherefore... Seeing we also have compassed about us uh, with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run the race with patience. And I just want to say thank you for being one of those people that we have been able to look back on and, and see faith exemplified in your life and uh, encourages us to, to keep on doing what we're doing. Thank you very much. Jesus said they have their reward, and we, have, we feel that way. We feel like, man, every year that we were on this campus was fabulous. So we are, but I thank you for your thoughtfulness. Great. Well, we've got a couple of questions we want to ask you um, that we've written down. And the first one, I think you kind of hit on it just a little bit, but let me ask you uh, maybe to, to expand on this. It says, from your perspective, how have things changed at the college in the last 30 years? Now, I know we saw some slides from Steve Dixon. And one of the slides, uh, w didn't you have one of your daughters in one of the slides? Did you see her? Uh, may have been one on the car. The one on the car? Do you, know who, do you remember which one that was? Probably Ellen Stead. Yes, I think it was. Right. Wasn't that your wife, Doc? The one, the cheerleader on the car? Yeah. 
I thought I recognized her because she, she still looks the same. <laughs> but how, how would you say school has changed the most significant ways in the last 30 years? Well, that's sort of the key question to everything to an alumnus. How has it changed? The alumni, I'm sure, would be very unhappy if it hadn't changed at all. But in most of the fundamentals as to the theology of the school, it hasn't changed at all. In, in some of the, the functional ways it has, and the one that I would pick out as the most dramatic of any that I think of would be the mission's emphasis. The missions conference used to be standard equipment where we would bring missionaries in from wherever and they'd meet the students and tell the story. But the idea of going out and then following it in the summer and travel across the country or downtown or across the world, that has made an enormous impression on the college and on us, on all of us. It has just been a totally different thing and I think is, is the most dramatic. Other, you know, physically there have been some very fine additions, the three dorms are just magnificent, the uh, tennis courts, the refurbishing of the campus, just, just great, additional property. But you must remember that when we came, this was open country. There were very few homes, and uh, all that you had on the hill was a swimming pool. There was no building around it, it was just the swimming pool, and, and uh, very little like that. So I guess if I were to say the uh, community has changed around us as much as we have changed within. Thank you. Another question we have for you is, when you were a young man, who influenced your life, and uh, what was it about the individual that changed you? Well, there wouldn't be any doubt about the fact that my dad and mother uh, were the most influential people in my life, as well as my two brothers and two sisters. Uh, the, the singular thing about my dad was that, as a stockbroker, uh, he, was, he was really honest. It was his integrity. Uh, just We loved him because we could see through him like a glass door. And uh, his loyalty to the Word of God, he taught a Sunday school class. He'd be in bed with mother reading the Sunday school times or, or the Schofield Bible. He brought us up that way, but he was just that genuine. We never had any doubt at all as to the validity of biblical Christianity. So dad and mother were easily the most influential people in my life. Uh, another question says, as a father of six children and grandfather of more than 20 children, um, what advice would you give to our students, of, of course, accepting uh, family planning? <laughs> uh, as you know, uh, my precious wife and I, we have six children, five daughters, and one son. And uh, they, in many ways, they went through their... their uh, younger years or the days of major temptation, adolescence, while we were in that White House. And as I was telling one of the alumni, for them to be looking out our window there, the picture window at the front of the house, was one of the biggest assets we had in bringing up a family. They would compare the activity on this campus with the activity at Hart High. And of course, everything about the campus here was, was clean and decent and exciting and fun and enriching and supportive of everything that, that my precious wife and I believe. So there was a sense in which it, it, we were greatly aided by living on the campus. Now, there, was, there were no buildings beyond it, so when they got to our house, 
the students got to our house, that was about as far as they went unless it was athletic, and the athletic field is, is where Reese Academic Center is now or was then. At any rate, that's, that's the way it was. And my counsel, I guess, would be if you are loyal and, and respectful and supportive of your, your dad and mother, if they are biblical people, if they love the Word of God, you want to make, make uh, friends with them in, in every opportunity you have because they, they will mean something to you that nobody else can. If you really love your dad and mother and they love God, you have ten steps advantage over practically anybody. So if I were to pick one thing, the other thing that the alumni would remember, I'd advise, walk against the traffic. Walk against the traffic. That's the way you keep from getting killed on Placerita Canyon Road. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, much of what we enjoy here at the college is because people like yourself and your children and your wife have been faithful to serve God and be faithful to his word and, and we're really rejoicing in your faithfulness we would like to think that uh, one day when uh, there is a meeting in several decades in the future when someone is talking about us that they will talk about us the way we look back and admire and respect, respect you, your faith, your leadership what would be something that you could leave with us as a student body, staff, faculty, that could uh, really be a challenge to us to maybe prepare the soil right now so that God's Word will continue to be preached and upheld on this campus? Well, that's a pretty big order. The Scripture says, of course, that we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to start by believing God. Now, each one of you people have taken a major step of faith in coming to the Master's College. I don't know whether you interpret it that way, but the day was when you came to the conviction that this was for you, and then you followed it through by a strong commitment. You said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to believe God. And when you've done that, when you sense that God can lead and God can supply and protect, then it goes beyond that. To tell the truth, when I went to, to college, I had two things in mind. One was to keep out of the dean's office. And the other was to marry Jane Holmby. Now, those were my two great goals. Everything else was incidental until I could achieve those goals. But I'll tell you, you know, you think of fellows as being sort of blasé and, and indifferent and above it all. But the fact of the matter is, if you fellows make a mistake in your marriage, you will have scarred your lives. And I would say that if there's one area next to the, the knowledge of God through his precious Son that cannot be overestimated, it can't be prized too highly, it's the choice of a precious girl who similarly has chosen to put the Lord Jesus Christ first in her life, in her education, and in her marriage. So I think that as I think of all that my family has meant, you know, we have to vote on everybody. There had to be a vote on whether John Stead would be allowed to marry Ellen. How many votes did you have to take to do that? <laughs> well, it was tough going. <laughs> yeah, there had to be a vote for Nate Wright. Is he, is he good enough for Debbie? And on it went. We have five wonderful sons-in-law. We love them so much. One precious daughter-in-law. But it's that world that I feel is one of the greatest benefits and opportunities of a Christ-centered college 
where it is one of the best places, just like a good gospel preaching church, to meet a life partner so much in common and so important. Thank you. And what an advertisement for Valentine's Day coming Amen. up. That's right. <laughs> now, you didn't tell us, however. Were you successful in your two goals? I was successful in the marriage. I got into the dean's office from time to time. but it. it <laughs> Why? It what, was, what did you do to get you into the dean's office? Well, they, they were not as progressive as I was in some of their thinking. <laughs> Well, come on, come on. We want to know okay. the dirt. Come I was on. preparing in those days to deal with people like you. <laughs> I want to ask you what that means. Okay. Well, we've got one more surprise for you as we end chapel. Uh, Steve Dixon's going to come up, and there's uh, a group of people that we want to introduce to you and to our students uh, to present you with a special gift. Steve? I think... We should, we should have them come down. Come on down. And Dr. Duncan, you, you remember, of course, uh, the main group on campus now, singing-wise, is Majesty. Before that, it was Reflections. And prior to that, we had a ladies' trio, and we had a, a quartet called the Conquerors Four Quartet. We have here today a 30-year reunion for the 1963, the first-ever Conquerors Four Quartet. You'll see their picture right up here, I hope, as they were in 1963. Please welcome with me, from right to left, Mike Wynn, Chuck Edwards, Dan Johnson, and Dick Beto. Great to have these guys here. Playing the piano, playing the piano for the Conquerors for today, also a graduate, 1987, 1985 alum, Mr. Paul Rowe. Here you go. You ready for that? <laughs> <laughs> Are we? Deeper, deeper in love of Jesus, daily let me go. Higher, higher in the school of wisdom, more of grace to know. Oh, deeper yet, deeper yet, deeper yet, deeper yet, Deeper yet I pray, deeper yet I pray, and higher. 
blessed Lord, in thy presence.